Michael Kelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are beginning a mini-series about a game called Kentucky Route Zero, which uh, was made by a small studio called Cardboard Computer and was released episodically between uh, 2013 and 2020. Um, Boy, waiting for those episodes was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> like, whole years would go by <laughs> without a single word. And I, I, would, I would actually kind of end up refreshing the fucking website, like, basically every day at some points to, like, just be like, please give me more content. I'm, I'm dying here. Um, it's the, the Elden Ring of the uh, 2010s. Very um, much so. Um, <laughs> yeah, def- definitely a big case of uh, the, the episodic sort of thing there. Um, but... What we, what we ended up with at the end of the wait was truly phenomenal. So um, we thought we'd give it a bit of a treatment. Uh, plus, I mean, it's, it's a game that I, I think it's really fascinating how much it dwells on labor and precarity and has this like very lumpen proletarian perspective on everything, which is so, so rare in anything game-like. Um, not that this is terribly game-like, really. Um, it's uh, very much a clicky-talky. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I guess there's a, there's a number of small pieces of side content that are missable, uh, but in terms of major stuff, there's there's really only two sections of the game where you can miss things, uh, depending on your choices. Um, so it, it is it is not uh. Not really a quote-unquote choices matter game. Um, it's it's much more of a, you know, you're on rail sort of thing, which is very fitting because it has a, a, a very fatalistic tone to it. Mm-hmm. It does. <laughs> this, is, this is a grim game. Um, it's an extremely grim game, yeah. It, it, I, I was picking it up um, this week uh just starting out the game and uh just felt this this weight of dread descending upon me uh, cuz i finished the game once before and yeah you you know what's coming so <laughs> yeah, absolutely um so it's a, it's a it, it's a sort of it's an adventure game of sorts but really i think it more closely resembles a stage play or a, or even a movie um that is is all about these um, these people wandering the kind of uh, post-industrial ruins of Kentucky in what seems to be the mid seventies. I think this is somewhere in the region of nineteen seventy three or nineteen seventy eight. Even though there's anachronisms all over the place, so it's a kind of a non time in some ways. Yeah, I was going to say based on all the commentary about uh, televisions, um, I think it couldn't possibly be in the seventies. Uh, it would have to be afterwards because uh, there's specifically a mention of like HD tuners. Uh, like you know, you know, you could like around the time when uh, over-the-air signals switched from uh, SD to HD, you could buy those little like uh, adapter antennas or whatever to display the HD signal on your SD. Uh, TV, uh, and it says on uh, the workshop that uh, they don't uh, they don't they don't do those. Um, so I, I get the sense that it's 
maybe like my my personal sense was that it was set maybe in the early 2000s in the aughts or something like that uh but what what made you think it was in the 70s because the um the 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 first no sorry the second interlude um the inter- the entertainment um specifically pins down its date as being in 1973 okay gotcha yeah but it is all over the place in terms of anachronisms and also a lot of this is very clearly inspired by the 2008 crash so <laughs> you know uh, i think that the 2000s range is is more uh, more appropriate there perhaps yeah 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 um no that's a very good point and then the other thing is like with the computer stuff you kind of get the sense that like the 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 punch card all the punch card tech is something outdated you know because the computer at Equus Oils at the start doesn't seem to be a punch card computer. It seems to be a microcomputer or a PC of some kind. Yeah, so somewhere in there between the 90s and the aughts is where I kind of located it in my mind. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense as well in terms of like, yeah, this is magical realism and time is just a very loose concept. So that thing with magical realism is, um, it's, it's a very clear influence. Uh, so mag- magic realism is this um, kind of literary or theatrical genre where kind of magical and weird events are just presented um, straight-faced alongside everything else. So it, um, it's kind of like, it, it gives things a dreamlike kind of feeling, which is um, really taken to dizzying heights in, in the, the play of this game across the five episodes. Um, there's some truly bizarre stuff in here. Um, so it's, 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 it's all dialogue, really. Um, it's all dialogue and spectacle. And the, the dialogue choices that you get are more about setting the tone or setting the, the, the flavor of the characters by kind of selecting elements of their background story. It's very rarely about... I mean, as, as you said, it's very rarely about any kind of consequential... Uh, big decisions like you're, you're not going to be deciding whether Alice or Bob dies or anything like that um, but you'll be deciding whether your one of your characters is uh, a tired old man or a tired old drunk more or less um, <laughs> or both um, I, I have seen it said as well that um, there's a fun there's a fun reading of this where all of the options you get for tone are actually all true simultaneously it's just it's you're choosing where you put the emphasis yeah that was the impression I got was that when you are yeah when you're telling like when you are explaining your character's backstory to the other characters um because the perspective that the player can choose dialogue options between uh shifts uh regularly like it's it's not always one character that you are role playing it's uh it's often uh one and then you are also doing the response to the choice you made um uh, that is just, yeah, changing what you choose to emphasize more so than the facts of what happened. Uh, because I did get the impression that the main character, uh, or the, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say the main character because there really isn't one, but your starting protagonist, uh, Conway, was an alcoholic and... 
basically tried to get off the bottle uh, and is like, you know, kind of in a dicey situation with alcohol, but um, certainly was like a full on alcoholic in the past. Absolutely. Um, I think one other sort of interesting angle on this is that um, the the game, it, it, it was initially kind of teased in 2011 with a Kickstarter campaign, and it had an early trailer that looked very different. It was more like a 2D side-scrolling, almost like a Metroidvania sort of weird thing with, with like platforming and stuff. Um, and the, it changed vastly after the, after the fundraising campaign. And I think the, the way the creators explained this was that they realized that they were starting to build a puzzle game. It was stuff like, oh, you have to go to talk to this character to get a key to open this gate to move forward. And they found that that was just yeah, not really working and it didn't fit the themes very well. Um, but they came across this notion, I think it's some, some literary criticism sort of stuff, of like the difference between puzzle and mystery, where a puzzle is something that's knowable and does have a solution, whereas a mystery is open-ended and doesn't necessarily have a solution and, and you will never have enough information to get a grip on the mystery. And that's, that's when they realized they were making a mystery game, not a puzzle game. And so everything changed thereafter. And, uh, oh boy, like that, that fucking thing in the trailer would have, I don't know, like I, I, we definitely would not be talking about this game if it was that thing in the trailer. Yeah, if it was some kind of like Maniac Mansion descendant, like I would be much less interested in this game. I'm I'm really glad it's not a uh, point and click puzzle game or uh, or adventure game of that sort where it's like rub X on Y uh, to solve puzzles. Yeah, can you imagine? Um, and the, the it, it has this wonderful sort of very minimalistic art style um, that is it's it's really lovely to look at. Um, it's it's also kind of evident that the creators had they came from a background of like visual and performance arts. So there's a lot of stuff in here about, like one of the things they were fascinated with in their performance arts days was like using television screens in, in, in visual arts. And there's this, this game has a sense of like television screens and computers being magic. Um, that very much comes from that kind of vibe. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in the like, I guess, I guess what you call set design, really, um, that really is just straight out of theater. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of, um, in addition to the magical realism, there's a lot of like Southern Gothic, there's a lot of um, modernist kind of theater, there's a lot of like death of a salesman, that sort of DNA is all washed through here. Um, I can't really speak to the literary or theatrical influences all that much, but just, just to say that they're, they're there and anyone... Anyone who's familiar with that stuff will probably recognize it instantly. Yeah, I would say the influences tend to be mostly 20th century kind of like highbrow art uh, that is that has a social realist bent to it. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, Death of a Salesman is a big one, but we'll see some others come up here, too. Uh, there's lots of references to theater, yeah, uh, but also visual art um, and um, even uh, po poetry is a big one. And then finally, um, sort of interactive fiction and the history, the early history of video games uh, uh, as a narrative medium mostly uh or as some kind of like almost installation art type of medium uh 
very uh, interaction focused, but not, you know, it's not Contra or, you know, Super Mario Brothers. That's not the, the type of video games that they're interested in here. No, totally. The the, influ- the pile of influences actually reminds me a lot of the, like, visual arts people who would, like, have a laptop with Ableton wired up to a fucking load of light send- arrays and stuff and, you know... A big, a big like wall of of uh, CRT televisions playing back all the kind of like generated glitch art or whatever. Um, yeah, I, again, that was kind of why I got that impression of like late '90s, early aughts. Is that is sort of an art style that really starts to boom around that time. Uh, although, of course, we've we've talked in the past about how it has its origins, you know, in cybernetics, in like the seventies and eighties and stuff like that. But, uh, it, you know, it, that's just a, the, an art style that I associate with that period. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and for, for anyone who's playing along with the, with us on this, uh, well, I mean, firstly, feel free to enjoy the, uh, the stuff vicariously. Um, don't feel under too much pressure to play along. Um, th- there's a lot of call forwards in, and there's a lot of like stuff that's like general themes for characters um, so it's going to be very hard for us to not talk about things that come later, even 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 during this episode. So we kind of recommend play the whole thing if you can, and then maybe listen to us talking about it. Um, we'll we'll still we'll still be here when you're done, uh, but it'll it'll just mean we can we can tie themes together in a better in a better way. The whole thing is about a ten ten hour experience, so it's easily done in a week. Uh, I shouldn't say easily done exactly because it it's emotionally <laughs> grueling, but it is it is, cool. uh, it is uh, 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 in terms of time budgeting, it's it, like you can sit down uh, some evenings of a week and finish it, no problem. Uh, so by the time episode two of this rolls around, chances are you'll have a chance to finish the whole game. Almost certainly. Um, um, one last tip for time budgeting is that um, I think Acts 1 and 2 are pretty damn short. Um, the, the the second interlude, called The Entertainment, is quite long. And then Acts, Acts 3 and 4 are quite long. Um, I would recommend splitting Acts, Acts 3 and 4 up into two sittings each. Um, cause I, I had this unfortunate thing in my first way, my first playthrough through those acts that I was kind of rushing them a bit and that attenuates the emotional payload a little bit. So they are long, don't feel the need to rush them. If you're getting tired, put it down and come back tomorrow, um, is my advice there. Uh, cause it, it does some damage to the content to, to try and rush through not knowing how many scenes are left in in the act, you know, and then f- five is fine again. It's 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 a pretty compact experience. Um, I I think this thing's basically a, a masterpiece, but the the pacing of those middle acts is maybe the one thing I would pick fault with. In that, I think they get a bit wordy. Um, they're a little bit overlong some of the scenes, uh, but it's great. It's still great, great content, you know. Yeah, I understand what they're going for in those acts, and, and, and we'll get to that when we get to it, I guess. Um, well, I guess I would just say to relate this back to the podcast in general, uh, we're going to see in future chapters a lot more of stuff that is 
obviously and directly relevant to the general sort of themes of general intellect unit. Like, you know, we're going to get into a lot of the critique of capitalism in here. We're going to get into the sort of history of computing and the utopian history of computing in here. Um, so all that stuff is coming up. We've just been kind of nerding out about how cool this game is and looking at all the little bits and pieces of it uh, and doing a little bit of analysis. But uh, the thematic harmony with what we generally do is is upcoming. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely right. And half of it as well is it's just fucking great, and we want to chat about it. <laughs> so you're gonna have to put up with that for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I'm happy to just just gonna ha- happily enthuse about the game uh, as well. Yeah, uh, but it, it it's it's remarkable actually that um, th- yeah that this that this game does have such a scathing critique of of capitalism and and this like deep insight into the history of computing and stuff and it's like it's kind of remarkable and like it's remarkable that it doesn't get as much credit for that because i mean i think over the last year or two people have been flipping their lid over like disco elysium as like a kind of like explicitly like socialist kind of game or whatever or where the the theming has a lot of that stuff in it but it's like kentucky route zero is also just sitting there on the table folks and it is fucking merciless in its critique um yeah, I think the thing is that the final chapter of this game is the one that talks the most about communism. Um, and that chapter, I believe, released in the same year as Disco Elysium. Sure, gotcha. That was it was like January of 2020, right? That when that final chapter came out. Yeah, it was it was it was like beginning of the year, end of year kind of thing, right? Uh, which, you know, end of year is always more favorable for uh, a game of the year discussions and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the, the the critique of capitalism stuff was always there. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, this game deserves uh, attention in that regard for sh- uh, like, absolutely, because it's, uh, you know, this is... Um, this is a game about rural poverty and deindustrialization, whereas Disco Elysium is more of a game about urban poverty. And, uh, and so um, they have different, uh, different perspectives, but, but although they share a lot of the same tone, uh, I guess you would say. I mean, Disco Elysium is more jokey, uh, but uh, overall the melancholy and... Uh, you know, the, the this sort of communist melancholy is very strong in both of these games. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess Kentucky Route Zero is a slower burn too, um, and like it it does go from melancholy to just bile as well. Like it it is it is like really aggressive in its um, uh, disgust at like at the system, um, but it, it maybe takes a little bit longer to get there, and it's not quite so obvious from the uh, uh, promotional materials. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fucking great stuff. Um, uh, so act one opens with, um, this, this title card for Equus Oils. Um, and we get this, uh, silhouette of a, of a gas station and a truck pulling up to it. Um, uh, this, this lone figure gets out of the truck. This is our initial protagonist, Conway, um, and his, his dog who is, who is ever present. Um, so, so Kyle, what did you end up naming the dog? Uh, my first playthrough, I named the dog Blue. Uh, in the second playthrough, I named the dog Homer. Interesting. I've, I always do Blue. 
I, I can't imagine that dog being called Homer. <laughs> I don't know. It's very strange. Well, I, I just I just thought I would mix it up. You know, it's, uh, I think Blue is pretty much the name I would go for every time if I was playing it the first <laughs> time through. But yeah. but uh, yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to just going to do so- something different here. Uh, so I went with Homer. Uh, and then there's the really cruel option of just <laughs> you don't name the dog. It's just some dog, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. trick here is that there's a guy sitting in a, a an antique armchair out in the middle of the fucking gas station. He's he's the owner. You wander up to him and they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" And um, he's like, "Oh, nice dog you got there. Uh, what's its name?" And you get your you get your dialogue options. And this is just walking us through the the way of interacting with this thing, which is um, big black boxes with text in it overlaid on these these gorgeous scenes. And the three options you get for naming the dog are. Are, yeah, like Blue, Homer, and then just some dog, which is, which I, I, I hope nobody t- ever chooses that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a blue separatist, you know, it's, uh, I would be very <laughs> mad if anyone ever d- decided not to name the dog. Um, yeah, uh, so about those text boxes, they're kind of done in the style of a monochrome CRT monitor. Uh, so those big, those big hulking monitors uh, from uh, the seventies, eighties, and nineties uh, into, I guess, the odds. It's got that amber sort of amber text for the clickable elements, like the uh, the old, uh, yeah. And, and then they play with it in some cases where you see like it scanning. Uh, as though you were like looking at a uh, a monitor w- that is out of sync, or you were looking at it through a camera with a certain uh, refresh rate, uh, or um, uh, it can be kind of staticky and out of focus. Uh, but it, it's 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 very it draws a lot of attention to itself as far as a text box goes. Uh, it's it's a it's a way of accenting the text uh, as opposed to just a uh, medium to convey information. I think that's the crucial difference between this and a lot of clicky talkies uh, in general is that um, I think the creators were aware that the text is the main interface to the whole thing. Um, and so the the way it's presented is very finely tuned and the way the text prints itself is very deliberate it's it it prints in because i mean everyone's gonna be familiar with the like the zelda way of like printing them in little triplet kind of like sort of things there's something like that going on here but it prints at the pace that the person is speaking now there's no spoken lines here but reading the text is actually the main play in a way right like it, it it's not it doesn't just print it as in a block and then you read it you read while it prints and it's all flowing in this very convincing way it ebbs and flows. There's like characters who speak slower and you read a bit slower and they speak faster and so on. Um, so there's a lot of attention to detail being put into that, um, which I guess is nice because it is it is the main thing you're going to be staring at for a good long while. Yeah. And so you can, in the options, you can adjust the rate at which this happens, I think. But it's th- that cadence of the text, I believe, is preserved one way or the other. Uh, haven't I haven't experimented with it too much because the... Um, the default setting was just fine uh, as far as uh, pacing. Speaking of the options, actually, there's a thing I noticed that's really kind of remarkable. Like the um, the writers have a 
real passion for language. And uh, like, so when you're in the options menu, like what would ordinarily be the buttons for like save and cancel are instead labeled remember and forget, yeah, <laughs> which yes. I think is really fantastic. <laughs> and that, that kind of sets up a tone, right? There's, ah, there's, there's a lot of deep sads in, in this, in this story. Um, but the, the, the story gets off to a kind of start here with, um, uh, this this guy Joseph is telling us about like a wreck down the road. He's like, "Wow, did you see that? Did you see that fucking car flipped over or whatever?" There's like, you know, or the a van that flipped over, and it's like there's you know beer bottles smashed all over the place, you know. Um, and so there's a bit of back and forth, and our guy Conway is is asking for directions to Dogwood Drive because he's he's doing a delivery for Lisette's Antiques, which is a he's, he's a delivery driver for this this antique shop. He needs to get to Dogwood Drive for this delivery. Um, and Joseph says, uh, hmm, Dogwood Drive is on the other side of the zero. And zero is printed very strangely on screen. It's kind of like wibbly wobbly and, and strange. And that, that'll be a theme throughout. Um, so you need to find route zero. And to do that, um, well, he'd love to look it up, but the computer's bust because the power is out. Uh, if you could go down into the basement and restore the power, that'd be great. Um, and then we can look up the address on the computer. So this this is it, it's it's kind of tutorializing the interaction stuff here, and it's like click on the little icon over, over by the stairs that says you know basement, and you go down to the basement and so on. Yeah, uh, one thing to say about Equus Oils itself, uh, there is an enormous bust of a horse uh, in the in the back of the of the the gas station. The building is a horse head. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> Yeah. And everything is lit in silhouette. So the sun is uh, in front of the camera behind the building and we're, we're, everyone is basically silhouetted in black, um, which remains the case as we go down into the basement. Um, there's three weirdos down here playing a game in the dark, it seems. Um, they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, it seems, and they've, they've lost their D20. Uh, they don't respond to Conway if he interrogates them. Um, so weird, weird shit is kicking off already, <laughs> which is very funny. Yeah, you, um, they may be playing like the boxed version of Dungeons and Dragons. It's definitely not the, uh, it's definitely not the standard, like, uh, pen and paper version because they have some kind of game board they're going around. Yeah, sure. You, you mean like the original boxed edition from the 70s or whatever? Yeah, I'm not talking about like the BX, like 70s D&D. &D. I'm talking about the like, sup like that sort of like intro intro game of D, D that was like uh is kind of like what gloomhaven is now uh where, where it's like you have a board you go around that kind of like ameritrash uh style of game design where it's it's like oh yeah there's like a little castle for you to explore or something like that uh just because yeah they mentioned a game board and that is not something you usually use in D, &D so it's it's but they they are using polyhedral dice and uh they ask you to or they don't ask you but they mention that they <laughs> they don't they don't acknowledge you <laughs> they, they 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 dropped uh they've dropped their d20 uh their 20 sided die and uh uh it's glow in the dark so you turn off your flashlight and you can see it and you go pick it up and then you go back up up upstairs and uh they're all gone they've all disappeared um so it, it gives you the option then to either keep the dice or put it on the table what what's 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 your take on this what what, what do you do um i think first time i put it on the table second time i kept it yeah i've always kept it i've, I've just realized actually i mean i've played this probably three or four times now and um 
I, t I tend to take more or less the same options every time. I think there's a canonical playthrough in my head uh, that I find it very hard to d deviate from. Um, but yeah, I think th this this bit with turning off the flashlight is is introducing a mechanic that's reasonably important in some scenes where you have control over something. It's almost always a flashlight, actually. Um, and you can turn it on and off at will, and there's something about the scene that will be revealed or will change slightly depending on what you do. Um, so it feels like a throwaway mechanic initially. It does crop up a couple of times again. Um, but with this done, you can throw the switch and back upstairs. Once you throw the switch, it, it becomes evident that the basement is also shaped like a horse. So the entire building is a horse that's just like sunk into the ground, um, which is very funny. Um, yeah, the, the horse motif in this game, I don't know entirely what to make of it. Obviously, the horse is a symbol of Kentucky, right? Um, because, you know, the Kentucky Derby and, you know, it's, 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 it's just a very famous place in America for horse breeding. Um, I don't really know what it's supposed to signify, like, other than that. It's just like, like they're, they're kind of just there. Like you see them later in the game, but I don't, I never really got much of a thematic, a thematic payoff with the horses. They just. They're just around. They're just horses, you know? Um, I I truly don't know. And I, I don't know anything about horses, so shrug, you know? Um, but we go back upstairs. And I mean, if, if you if you mention the weirdos to Joseph, he's like, nah, Wayne, you must have been hallucinating. Um, which is, it's kind of setting up the beginnings of a theme for Conway. Like, Conway kind of hallucinates a lot um, or blacks out a lot. There's a lot of screwy mind stuff with Conway but that that's just the magical realism as well right um and for some of that it's very hard to pin down whether it's a hallucination or if it's real like is is this true it's kind of impossible to say yeah right because it's played straight faced you know it's there's I mean the thing is if you go down uh to the area where you find the d20 and turn off your light initially the D20 is not there. It's not there. You can't preempt it. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, I don't know. It's that, <laughs> it's that barrier between reality and uh, hallucination is very unclear in this game. And it plays it to spectacular effect as well. Yeah. And it's often like temporality is very out of sync too. Um, yeah, totally. Um so uh, Joseph says to go back, go into the, not 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 like back into the basement, but into just the the cashier's till and use the computer. The the the, the password is some sort of poem. It's like it's it's one of those poems that just uh, you'll you'll figure it out. So um, you can go over there and you, you get like three consecutive prompts with three options that you can just write yourself a little poem and uh, and it it unlocks the computer, which is which is good fun. Yeah, no, it's great because it's like compared to a traditional adventure game, like. It's not like, oh, like, it's not like Hitman or something like, you know, go look at the post-it note on the wall or whatever. <laughs> it's it's like, no, just write your own poem and whatever you write, that's going to be the correct password. It, it gets you involved in the in the process. Um, there's something funny here, though, that if you because, uh, I mean, you, you get the username prompt first. And so um, you have a couple of options, you have like Joseph and Conway. They're the two things you can type in. Um, if you type in Conway, it just spits out user Conway is not real. Which I think is just a fantastic line. Um, yeah, it's like something I never really 
quite know I never really quite knew what to make of it like because <laughs> I mean is it the fact that Conway's kind of unstuck in time is it is it that he's having these these hallucinations like it's there's a couple of things going on here because I think the most innocent explanation is that what it means to say is that um Conway is not a valid user in the user database but it's phrased very strangely as if as if it's badly localized or something like that. But it does very directly indicate a lot of the problems of Conway's subject in this, uh, in this whole thing. Plus, I think very early it also suggests with the, 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 the van wreck that Conway is actually dead. And this is purgatory. Like, I think that's one of the things that occurred to me initially on my first playthrough is like, oh, this is one of those River Styx stories, which it kind of is. <laughs> But also not, <laughs> you know? Kind of is. It, it also not, yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's a yes and no kind of thing. It's like, he's very much a character who is living but not alive. You know, he's, he's in that gray zone between life and death. Uh, between, between, like, having a vital attachment to life and just giving up on it. I think that makes him a very interesting variation on the kind of straight man trope in um, in, in media, because his his responses to many of the things that happen are either just numb or dumbstruck or shell shocked, like it, just like this this shocked incomprehension of what's happening. He's like a like a Beckett or a Pinter yeah, protagonist. There we go. But anyway, once once you get past through the, the password prompts, you get some categories. There's messages, there's addresses, and there's games. If you click on games, it just says games is not real, which is fantastic. Um, if you go through addresses, it says that um, you get a couple of options for the zero, Dogwood Drive, um, and it tells you both of those are not real. So Dogwood Drive is not real. The zero is not real. Um, and if you click through to no so what's what's happened here as well is that uh before this joseph has actually said that you need to look up weaver marquez her address because she'll know how to get to the zero so that's the trick here and it'll give you the address of the marquez farmhouse um but if you look through the emails um there's a couple of interesting ones there's one from uh the power company <laughs> saying that uh well you're 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 behind on your bills and so consolidated, consolidated Power is putting you on the uh, Low Reliability Dirty Power Plus program. Uh, but if, if, you, if you don't get the bills in, in the next month, you'll be on the Sustained Brownout <laughs> program, <laughs> which is very funny. Yes, Sustained Brownout Select. Yeah, the elite, the elite version of Sustained Brownout. Um, yeah, uh, it's um, this idea of being laid on your bills to the power company, we first see it here, but it's going to be pervasive throughout this game. Uh, it is... And this, this specific company, uh, Consolidated Power, which, now that I'm thinking about it, the name is rather on the nose. You know, Consolidated Power. <laughs> but hey. Yeah, uh, the power company really represents... Um, the enforced scarcity and privation that capitalism inf uh, inflicts on us, right? It, it's 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 the power of capital to accumulate for itself and also to deprive uh, the majority of people to immiserate um, 
And uh, that's 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 what we start to see here with uh, this consolidated power email. But it becomes becomes more and more ominous and horrifying as uh, the game goes on. Oh, boy, does it ever get horrifying? Um, I think consolidated power, I think also it's they, they pull a neat trick with the writing where it stands in for all of capital. So when it's situationally useful, it stands in for big industry like the factory boss. Then it can stand in for finance capital fucking you over. It can be uh, real estate fucking you over. It can be uh, debt bondage. It can be the um, pawn shop. You know, there's a lot of different angles on this, which, you know, consolidated power has its fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, but it's, it's a really use, useful gizmo in the storytelling to be able to have this this one big capital that is consolidated, as it were. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's capital as an alien and malicious force uh is 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 kind of what consolidated power is about which when its agents show up on screen later boy oh boy are they ever alien and malicious you know um uh but there's another there's another email from um this other character donald um kind of just re- reminiscing about the old days you know haven't been in touch in a while there's a reference to these caves and there's there's a whole world down here which will be important later um but we will we're not quite there yet yeah it's uh it's it's i think one thing i noticed playing through uh chapter one is that there's so much content here that is related to the xanadu story the cave story uh which i missed the first playthrough it was just like i don't even know what this is about this i don't what caves like what are you talking about uh but no this is this is a, a call forward and there's a lot of characters we meet that are core to this story, but like they just have a they have an oblique relationship to it in chapter one. Absolutely. Well, chap- chapter one is is Conway's perspective of just being some beleaguered drunk who needs to make a delivery and is waylaid by these fucking weirdos at every turn. And he's just he's like, guy, I just need to get to fucking Dogwood Drive. So even Conway's not paying attention. And like the player doesn't know to pay attention either to these kinds of cross connections. They'll only become evident in retrospect. Yes. Uh, And the, the final thing is this idea of unreality. Like, you know, um, we talked about Conway, but we're going to see how how Dogwood Drive and the Zero are, quote unquote, not real. (laughs) It tells you a prompt, you know, (laughs) uh, coming up, which is like, I think what it's referring to is a kind of virtuality, right? It's not that it isn't efficacious. It's that it exists on a kind of uh spectral plane of reality right it's like and i think that's 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 what it means by the statement games is not real like that games are virtual uh in yeah i guess kind of that delusion sense um, in in the, in the sort of Delizian sense as well of like the virtual being potentiality, you know, it's these are not actualized. They're they're tendencies that could be real but are not yet real. Um, I think later there's so th- throughout all of the first four acts, I had no fucking idea what Dogwood Drive would turn out to be, and we won't spoil it quite yet. But it is quite odd, and 
when you get to Act 5, there's a reason to believe that it just materialized instantly at that time, and that it hadn't in fact existed um, at, at this time, uh, which I think is quite compelling. So the, the computer may be very right in this, that it is not actually real, but it is real in potential. Yeah, yeah. Um, but who knows, interpreting this thing is impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, even when you are on zero, it has a weird kind of here and not here to it. Um, the, the virtuality is there. They're bizarre. Um, so Joseph has loaded a TV into the van to take to Weaver. Um, it's, it's her old TV and he, he, he was meant to give it back ages ago. Um, one of the things, things that's a constant here is that at the end of any scene, you have a chance to just chat with Blue, uh, with the dog. Um, I just have a little, 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 little chin wag and then hop into the van. You can give them, uh, Joseph's, uh, jerky. Uh, and apparently only 12% of players ever give, uh, ever give the dog, uh, ever give Blue the, the jerky. Fucking horrifying. Because uh, it's, <laughs> it's not, it's like the dialogue tree is also not very obvious about like, you could just be like, oh, how's it going, Blue? And then, you know, it just moves on. Uh, so it's e easy yeah. to miss. Totally. There's a lot of dialogue here that's very easy to miss, um, actually, because of the way it's structured. I think the way the conversations are structured here is, um, is very different from a lot of um, clicky-talkies, where you usually have the opportunity in, in other games to basically explore the entire tree. Like, you, you can always back out to another level and go down a different leg of the tree to find other answers. That's rarely the case in this game, because the, the conversations are paced like they are conversations. So you might have two or three branching paths that you can go down in this, like, uh, back and forth kind of conversational thing. But it will end, and you, you'll get funneled into an end condition, and you can't really, you can't usually go back and explore the other uh, leg of the tree. So it's... It's very hard to get all of the dialogue in, in one sitting. It's designed not to, because like it, it's designed to feel like real conversations. Yeah, and uh, this contributes quite a bit to the sense of fatalism in the game. Mm -hmm. It's got an, an inexorable forward momentum, right? Yes, it's like things have moved on, you just have to keep moving. Yeah. Speaking of keeping moving, um, when, when, you, when you go to the, the van to leave the scene... Uh, which is usually the way you leave a scene. Um, you click on it, it gives you the two options, to like, are, which are essentially okay and cancel, right? And it's like, I didn't notice that these actually change every time you do them. So they're, they're not consistent, but there's some really evocative and beautiful ones in here. One I saw that was like, it was like Conway leaves or Conway has nowhere to go. And that's the negative option there. It's, it's just so evocative right out the gate. Yeah, like you can choose that in the sense is that Conway just feels lost. Uh, like, well, I could go to Dogwood Drive, but is that really where I belong? Um, and these, uh, these sort of editorial comments are very reminiscent of, like, a script or a screenplay. Because um, it, it's like... it. The whenever there's character dialogue in the game, it has the character's name printed in front of the line in a way that you would see on a script or a screenplay. Yeah, so it's Conway in block capitals, and then colon, and then space, and then the then the actual line. Yes, yes, and then and then these are are very much like almost like stage directions. 
I think they're all they're often printed in square brackets. In fact, which which is how yeah sure. So this is all stage direction stuff. Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good move. Yeah, so it, it, it's very much like you're scripting this play as you go along. What a play it is. Um, so when we leave, we get this overworld map. It's a top-down view of Kentucky. It's it's pitch black with white lines for the roads. Um, it's a very minimalistic interface overall. It's it's like these very simple hieroglyphs. Yeah, it's it, it kind of reminds me of like a Vectrex, like a like a vector vector graphics display, uh, or like using uh, an oscilloscope to make uh, computer graphics. Yeah, yeah, like like Elite or whatever the original sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's um, it's quite it's quite cool and evocative. You can drive like you can you can take the directions up to the Marquez farmhouse, which are really evocative. It's like turn left at the burning tree. <laughs> it's like there's a tree that's just perpetually on fire, which is cool. There's also a lot of optional sites. Um, a lot of these are very small vignettes, um, or they are just text based little little micro text adventures. Um, they are. Almost always these sad, weird little scenes, or they are derelict buildings, or their interactions with weird drifters. Um, like, there's nothing here is functional. Everything is derelict. Everything is abandoned. Um, there's never really more than two people in a scene at once, uh, or two or three people, usually. It's a very sad and lonely Kentucky. Yeah, uh, there's a huge sense of dereliction and rural poverty um, that is throughout this, uh, we have the, uh, the, the, the wreck that was mentioned in the initial dialogue, right? Uh, the, the, the van wreck with smash bottles and coffins, uh, which is... The coffins are weird. <laughs> They're scattered all over the road. <laughs> well, it's, I think, I think it's a reference. It's a call forward to the connection between, Consolidated Power, the whiskey distillery, and basically death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that is in fact canonical. Yeah, um, but it's a strange little scene. Um, there's a scene with an, two people pushing an airplane down the highway, which is pretty unusual. Um, there's a there's a there's a tiny little in, uh, encounter with a guitar player, um, which it just has a fun little gag where you put a dollar in his cup, but then he put he fishes it, it says he fishes a wet dollar out of his whiskey and, and drinks it. Um, so that was good fun. Yeah, and and again, I mean, it's getting to the whiskey, right? Like you know, Kentucky, Kentucky bourbon is a very significant uh object or character in this in this uh in this game story yeah totally um there's a fun little scene with a it's a text scene in a museum uh which again derelict museum so in in the lobby there's a a book lying on the floor or something that's it it has on its cover a a three-word phrase that's smudged out, which is very clearly the three-word phrase is Kentucky Route Zero, because the book contains drawings of um, drawings of a horse and then an elaborate ink drawing of a one-legged man working an antique adding machine, which will be something we see later. So very weird that it's got its own it's got its own little book inside of itself. Yeah, well, and I mean this is this is uh, presumably Conway. Right. And it's 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 it, it it's extra horrifying like that <laughs> he's having 
a kind of premonition or there's some kind of like correlationary connection to the future here that is showing him his fate. Well, it's extremely fatalistic. You're right. And I think maybe the um, the option to name the dog Homer maybe tells us something about this being kind of structured like a, an antique tragedy with um, this this kind of fatalism. And there's elements as well of the kind of like Oedipus Rex kind of problem of like condemning yourself to a fate by participating in it. Um, that you there, there's like self-fulfilling prophecies going on here. Um, and that's kind of like an inexorable pull towards a destiny, um, which is, yeah. And then when you go back and play, play it again, you're like, oh, Jesus, the, the book just tells him what's going to happen. It's like, uh, uh-oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, uh, very horrific. There's also, I mean, this, this is a big, this is kind of like adventure tree dialogue sort of thing, but um, further into the building, there's like a, um, there's a, a book, I think, that, makes reference to a, a, a tragedy involving three characters, Joseph, Donald, and Lula. Um, so that surely has to be something to do with the Joseph, Joseph and Donald we've just seen. Yes, and they, they are described as being in a love polygon. Uh, this is a uh, phrase that comes up later again, um, which is an interesting... It's a very interesting turn of phrase. Like, it's like like love triangle is inadequate to describe it because it has some kind of like non-standard topology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Which I think is actually quite evocative of, you know, relations and, 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 uh, romantic relationships are not so simple as just three points and lines connecting them. Absolutely. Um, gotta get it, gotta get a love graph going, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Um, but if we show up at the Marquez farmhouse, um, we kind of get this, this framing of a, a distant shot of like the, the van down at the bottom of the screen in this big hill. Um, what I found wonderful this time around is that if you wait long enough, somebody will walk in front of the camera lens, um, suggesting that there's something closer to the camera than you are. Um, but up the slope, there's, you find a weird little graveyard and then this, this house that's uh, framed dead center and it's, it's uh, from the side. This is very evocative of the... Um, the stage directions for Death of a Salesman, the the, the main sort of production that was put on, um, and apparently it is a direct influence um, here. Uh, if you go into the house and turn on the light, because uh, like the, the light switch is the first thing you're prompted to interact with, Weaver is just standing there, presumably in the dark, which is fucking bizarre. Um, uh, she's a she's a she's a strange one, as we'll 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 get in this conversation. Um, deeply unusual character. It's not usually on screen. She's only on screen once, really. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. I think so. It's the only time we'll actually meet her. Yeah. Yeah, and you're constantly looking for her uh, throughout the rest of the game, but um, you don't... Yeah, you don't see her again, as far as I recall. I think the, the name of Weaver is quite significant in that um, she's she's kind of like a spider that's weaving the web of the, the story. She's kind of hidden in the background uh, throughout a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like the fates, right? Like the, the the Greek fates, yeah, right. So that's that's another another touch point. Maybe Homer is the ca- canonical name for the dog. Actually, fuck this. It is the first one on the list. It is the first one on the list. But at the same time, Blue is a really good name it's for that a dog. Fantastic. <laughs> also, the dog wears a straw hat, which is fucking fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, where did yeah, the dog it's get got that a hat? sad, <laughs> sad straw hat to it? Yeah, yeah, it's a super old dog as well. It's just super cute, and it's a good model. Um, but anyway. Um, 
Conway explains the situation. He's like setting up the TV because like Weaver immediately prompts him to like, oh, could you put that put that on the table for me and set it up, please, and this sort of thing. Um, she weirdly she knows that Conway is headed for the zero. Um, she also knows about his parents and stuff, which is like weird, sort of much more information than she should have access to. There's this kind of strange scene then when the the, the TV turns on and the 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 back wall of the house just peels away. The the boards just slide up and out to reveal a barn out back. And so you've got these two characters silhouetted against this scene out back. Um, the camera pulls in towards the TV and Weaver is saying, oh, the, the, the it, it, she says something like, it's, you're not paying attention. It's, start, it's time to start paying attention. Look closely at the television. And of course, Conway immediately spaces out and the camera gaze drifts towards the barn, not the TV. Um, Weaver tells, says that the TV's picking up the wrong signal and that her cousin, Shannon, can help to fix it. Um, there's a really cool line here where she's, like, if, if you respond to an, it's like, well, who's Shannon? It, it's, you know, oh, she's my cousin, my father's brother's daughter, Shannon. We're about the same age. Well, we used to be. She's older now. <laughs> Which is so evocative. Like, she's a ghost, right? Weaver has to be dead. <laughs> yeah, she's she's definitely, definitely a ghost. Um, so cool. But she she gives you directions to what she calls the on-ramp. Uh, to, I, I, I'm not even sure she calls it the on-ramp to the zero, but she gives you directions to a place that's where you need to go. And I think... Conway infers that it has to be directions to the on-ramp to the zero. But, but when his gaze drifts back out, the weaver's gone. Um, and the, the, the boards slot back into place. Um, which is, it's, it's a super cool little scene. Like, so evocative and weird. Yeah, it's kind of the, um, the big set piece for, like, literally, like, because it is, it is drawn... It is drawn uh, based on the plans for a production of Death of a Salesman, so it's like literally based on a set. Um, and uh, but it's the big one for this chapter uh, in terms of sort of like uh, technical wizardry. Uh, each each of these chapters has at least one, usually several, of these big fucking blowout set pieces. Um, and they, they almost always come with an accompanying musical number, which we do get here on our way back down the hill. Um, way up near near the camera, there is the silhouettes of um, the three wackos from the basement playing a song. They're, they're, they're singing, You've Got to Walk. It's, it's, it's haunting and strange that these, these, these people are seem to be following you. Maybe, who knows? Uh, who knows what's going on? of like the opposite of a greek chorus like they're characters who have a uh unexplained relationship to the action of the play but they they don't comment on it like they're just they they just exist orthogonally to the they're story so strange. <laughs> it's so deeply weird i love these folks yeah so uh this um, this is significant because we learn that Weaver's parents were ethnomusicologists or uh, 
archivists, musical archivists, uh, who were studying Appalachian music. Um, and, uh, I, I looked up, a a, a page or, a, a um, a website, uh, describing this song. Um, and it's, uh, this is, uh, by C. Michael Hahn, history of hymns, Jesus walked this lonesome, lonesome valley. Uh, he's got a nice description here of Appalachian music that I think is a perfect description of, of Kentucky Route Zero. It says, uh, in addition to loneliness, these songs often carry a melancholy sensibility and helpless fatalism in which the characters in the narrative are caught in events over which they have no agency or must live with the consequences of actions they have initiated. And I, I think that's that's really just a perfect description. It, it completely nails the tone of this, the tone and the plot of uh, this game. Uh, they, there's a strong connection between this folk music and uh, what Kentucky Route Zero is. Uh, so yeah, um, Lonesome Valley itself is a kind of uh, it's kind of a hopeful song about a spiritual journey, but like mo maybe more hopeful than a lot of these uh, these lonesome songs from Appalachia. Yeah, th this this is upbeat compared to especially compared to the later ones we'll get because like I think each of the acts has this kind of blowout song that's in this kind of style um in in every one of them um there's something quite sinister about one of the lines though because it's like yeah you've got to walk that lonesome valley um hear the words that jesus said but then it goes there's no one here who can go there with you you've got to get there by yourself which i knowing what's coming that <laughs> just fucking rings very uh discordantly um yes yeah uh so it's a very interesting song because it's sung in chorus, but it's about the loneliness of spiritual journey. Uh, it's about like, even though we're together, we're all apart is, is kind of the message of the song. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite, uh, <laughs> it's quite funny because um, I believe this, this song was actually uh, popularized uh, by Pete Seeger um, as, as a kind of uh, like one of the songs that he would sing uh, as part of his like political activism. Right. Um, and uh, this. Um, yeah, it's, it's just funny that, you know, a song that is sung for the purposes of solidarity is about about being alone, about being utterly isolated. It's, it's almost like it's, it's a kind of song about encouraging you to carry on your journey, even though we can't actually help you, you know, like, even though you're, you're completely alone, we're with you in spirit is kind of the message there. <laughs> yeah. And for Conway's situation, he is entirely alone. And the help he's getting from these people is not great. <laughs> you know, he's just like, just completely baffled by what the fuck they're talking about. What the hell is the zero? Like, why are you giving directions to this fucking place? Who's this wacko with the TV? You know? Well, and as the game goes on, you get an increasing sense of how doomed Conway is. 
and people try to help him, but he really is walking this road alone and he is he is doomed. Like this is uh this helpless fatalism is kind of the core of his character. Yeah. Well, we're about to meet the character who will sincerely try to help him and not just give him a weird rotten TV or tell him to go to a fucking uh, an abandoned mine shaft. We're going to Elkhorn Mine, which is where we get with the directions to this supposed on-ramp, and it's it's an abandoned mine. Um, when when Conway walks in, the the perspective shifts abruptly to this uh, uh, to a woman standing somewhere else that feels like it's nearby. She's on the phone to somebody about an eviction. She's getting kicked out of her workshop. Um, when she hangs up, Conway enters. But your initial interaction is as Shannon. This, this, is, this is Shannon Marquez, um, the cousin of, of Weaver. And now you're kind of in Shannon's shoes for a moment. Um, they'll be together uh, for the rest of the act. But the perspective can shift back and forth. And this, this, is, this is one of the early instances where... Because like up until this point, you don't really have reason to believe that you'll ever shift perspectives like that. Um, but they, they introduce this thing very early. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a shock. You're like, oh wait, what? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm choosing I'm choosing her dialogue. Uh, I'm moving her around. Uh, and uh, it, again, it gets back to that thing where the player perspective is kind of of the person who is staging this play. Yeah, this is very like a stage play actually, where a new scene is just like. Two different characters, totally different characters, um, just uh, put on screen. Um, uh, Shannon, so the, Conway explains his situation, and uh, Shannon is like, she's here because she saw Weaver earlier this evening um, and told her to come here to the mine to, um, and in Weaver's words, find something she's been looking for. So they're both kind of baffled as to why they're here, because Conway is like, this doesn't look like it's the on ramp to anything. Um, so they, they head down into the mine. Um, there's this thing of like testing out the PA system to see how deep the tunnels are. Like, and uh, Shannon's on about topology, you know, it's a tangled space down there. Um, this is where the really cool sound design starts to kick in. Um, you've got Conway speaking into a microphone, this cool resonance stuff. Um, but the resonance causes a cave-in and you get a blackout and the little dialogue options then suggest that Conway's leg is pinned. Um, when we get out of the blackout, he's, he's limping. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, he's already on his way, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the image we saw in the museum, he's already on his way to being there. Absolutely, right? Um, so you, you can't escape the fates, right? Um, so they're, they're trapped on the other side of a cave-in. There's, thankfully, there's a minecart that's there. So they hop on board and they're like, well, we'll just drive the minecart down and we'll find the other exit. Um, this is a fun little scene with, um, going down the mine tracks and they come to an intersection where there's there's three different tracks that cross over each other. So there's six terminals. Um, and you're kind of doing this little exploration thing. Uh, the sound design here is fucking obnoxious because it's this like industrial grinding sound of the cart going and these like electrical sounds. It's very like David Lynch, right? It's, it's, like, um, it's like Twin Peaks where the sound of electricity signals something sinister is happening. Um, which is which is really good fun. Um. Yeah, it's it's very interesting the significance of electricity here because um, you can explore these uh, these uh, diverticula of the of this uh, this mine, right? Like this, uh, you 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 go on this uh, what is that called a turntable, right? Uh, and you can switch your track and move back and forth. 
uh, and you can see these different parts of the um, the mine. So uh, if you turn off the lights in one place, you can hear uh, old tapes of miners singing, uh, which were recorded by Shannon's parents as part of their ethnomusicology, right? Um, uh, in another place you go to, you learn that the miners died because of rationed power from the power company. In a flood, right? That the mines flooded and that they were on coal scrip and like company money and that they had to, they had to pay the, the consolidated power company for the electricity to run the pumps and the fucking like air purifiers. Um, and that the the flood got the better of them ultimately. Um, yeah, which is like it's implied that this is a situation they could have easily gotten out of if there had just if there had just been a steady supply of power instead of putting it on this this fucking script system, like a, a coin op uh, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and so like this is. Another instance we see of the power bill being a sign of capital's domination over people. And it's it's kind of a like this is this this death, you know, as 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 mining accidents usually are. This had like a very big impact on the community because mm-hmm. everyone's parents die more or less. Right. Yeah. Not just not just Shannon. Um and it's we see again and again the way in which this like entire Kentucky landscape or this this entire Kentucky society is being slowly murdered by capital mm-hmm. one by one. Um, and this is the, <laughs> it, it is grueling. And this is uh, the first big instance of that we see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, plus, uh if you get a little bit lost in here, uh, one of the ways to figure out how to get out is if you turn off your flashlight and you move the cart, there's like um, the power rails spark uh, periodically. When they spark with the light out, you can see the ghosts of the miners uh, silhouetted against the, um, the scene. But they are in general walking towards the exit, um, which is pretty damn evocative when you're going on this upward slope with these, these miners, these ghost miners walking alongside you. Um, so when you get out, um, you get to the exit, uh, Shannon says she's going to go back and look for something in one of the, the dead ends. Uh, there was a broken track that she wants to go look past. If you, you, can, you can either choose to keep your perspective with Conway or go with Shannon. If you go with Shannon, uh, she finds a pile of helmets uh, and the, the screen goes to black. Um, if you stick with Conway, actually, there's nothing really there. He gets to inspect a couple of items on the ground. Um, yeah, you see like some notebooks from I think Shannon's parents or something like that. So, so that's outside. Like when when you get to the outside, um, there's a shack that like Conway limps past and goes in to look. And there's the the notebooks that are evidently from Shan uh, not so are from Weaver's parents who were the archivists. Um, I think I right. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. So Weaver's parents were the archivists who and they survived, whereas Shannon's parents were miners uh, who died in the flood. Um, Shannon suggests we should probably find Weaver. There's an interesting bit here where, because um, like there's there's a lot of dialogue here and there's a lot of back and forth and kind of 
oh, where did you grow up? Kind of stuff like this. Um, there's a little story that she relays about Weaver being a kind of an odd child, but the thing is that Weaver never lies, even when she's speaking in very oblique terms. So when Weaver told you to go here to find your way to the zero, she wasn't mistaken and she wasn't lying. But we should. So you are on the right track. But we should find Weaver to pin this down. And there's there's two real there's two options here. She could be in either of the two places that she's been seen tonight, which is either at Shannon's workshop or back at the farmhouse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I should mention that uh, again. The ethnomusicologists were Weaver's parents, uh, uh, and there's a there's so even though they're related, um, you know, Weaver is an outsider. Like her family came to Kentucky to do their research. Uh, and they were, um, bankrupted by investing in their house, the, the death of a salesman house, um, you know, consolidated power got them to, uh, one way or the other, they're going to get you. And, uh, um, there's a, there's a big class divide between Shannon and Weaver, right? Uh, the, the, you know, Weaver comes from an educated family and she was a gifted mathematician where Shannon comes from a mining family and she has this much more hands-on relationship to things like in the sense that she works as a repair person. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, um, again, uh, Weaver's parents escaped the mine, uh, because they were just there. They had the, they would, they would pay the miners to sing for them. You know, uh, they didn't actually have like a kind of a very personal relationship with the miners. Um, and they even paid, uh, Shannon's parents to sing for them. Uh, it said in the, in the mine here. Um, but then, you know, again, Shannon, Shannon's parents actually die down there. Uh, Weaver's get it from the, the bank. Very different fates. Uh, certainly. Yeah. It's like, they're different and they're the same, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's like different manifestations of capital's power, according to your position in life. It'll, it'll get you one way or the other, the other you know, um, so if we head to Shannon's workshop, it's at the back of a uh, bait and tackle shop, um, and just we- Weaver isn't there. Um, there's there, there's some f- you can you can actually go to this uh, place earlier. Um, actually, w- after Weaver says to go look for Shannon, you can do these in either order, right? Like, and if you go there earlier without Shannon, um, you can go through the bait and tackle shop, and there's this weird sort of scene where. Um, and again, with the sound design of the electrical buzzing from the tanks, right, like the the, the fish tanks, um, can, Conway can end up ele- electrocuting himself off of one of these uh, fish tanks. And there's a quite a lovely thing where, because this is all text-based at that point, there's quite a lovely thing where the, the dialogue never says that he blacks out or gets electrocuted. It just changes. The, the text just changes to suggest that he's actually on a roof uh, in the sunlight with his um, with his boss Ira doing doing roofing work, and the the sound changes from the electrical buzz to like um, traffic noises and birdsong. Um, and as I said, Conway blacks out a fucking lot in this in this game. Like he's constantly losing consciousness. Yeah, and this is uh, taking him back to earlier days of being a worker uh, for Ira. 
And uh, the important detail here is that uh, he ditches his job to go get a drink. Uh, and this is the first indication we have that Conway is an alcoholic. Indeed. Yeah. Um, in the present thing with, with Shannon, you go straight back into the, the workshop at the back. Um, there's a fun, there's another fun thing where, uh, Shannon turns on some monitors and stuff. And there's like a, one monitor that's got like black static on it. It's just kind of blank. Um, but Conway stares at it and like has this like vertigo kind of moment where he feels like he's on a, a black ocean of static and like loses it. And he's like, anytime this guy sees a TV, he spaces out, which is another, another indication of a, maybe a problem. Um, either way, uh, Weaver isn't there. Um, before we get to the kind of conclusion, we can go back to Equus Oils. Actually, you can go back at any time, but it makes sense to do it when you've got Shannon in tow because you get uh, kind of two for one on content. Um, there's a hidden character in this um, in this game that only shows up after you've beaten, after, after you've finished the whole thing and then restarted. There's this other character called Carrington who can show up. And the first time you can get to see him is if you double back to Equus Oils. He's hanging around with Joseph. He's, he's a strange fella. He's got like a set of deer antlers over his shoulder. Um, very scruffy looking dude. Um, he's a, he's a theater director and he's, he's looking for a venue to stage uh, his life's work, which would be to a production of Frost's, uh, Frost's uh, Death of a Sale, uh, not, not Death of a Salesman, uh, Death of the Hired Man. Yeah. Which is a, it's just actually a poem. It's a long poem. It's an adaptation of the poem that he's trying to put on. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so this uh, death of the hired man, it seems to be a reference directly to Conway, right? Pretty much. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, so there's a there's a, a excerpt here that I took out. Uh, it says, uh, "Yes, what else but home? It all depends on what you mean by home." Of course, he's nothing to us anymore than was the hound that came a stranger to us out of the woods, worn out upon the trail. Uh, so I grabbed that section. It's essentially a poem about uh, the death of a fire or of a hired farmhand. Uh, and uh, he's a person who was isolated from his family and only good at working. Uh, so in that sense, very similar to Conway. Um the characters in the poem are actually uh, the farm owner, like a petty proprietor, and his wife, who are talking about the the hired man in the other room, uh, who's just shown up out of the blue uh, uh, to 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 ostensibly work, but actually to die because the only home that he has is his workplace. Um, even though he's not really much liked there, it is a place of belonging. And this is very similar to Conway, uh, and his relationship to the road, right? Uh, and his, his, his delivery job. Uh, and then of course the mention of the dog in the poem is probably where they grab the inspiration for the dog in the game, the uh, blue, right? Because, the the saddle dog that that follows around Conway is also a representation of Conway's state of being too. It's it, it's Conway's soul just externalized, right? Um, very much so. Um, I, I find this is also an interesting early hint to a, a running theme um, of of home, right? That like I think there's another line in Death of the Hired Man that um, defines home as something we don't need to deserve. 
Um, and so in this, in this whole story about precarity and, um, and this kind of miserable, uh, this life and like I'll, pretty much all of these characters are some kind of itinerant sort of drifter, precarious sort of person. There's this running theme of, uh, desire for a warm, stable home, um, and how that is seemingly perpetually out of reach. Uh, and that, that gets an early hint here. Well, it gets an early hint here if you have already finished the game and restarted it. Um, there's, there's another wonderful line from, uh, uh Carrington, is that his, um, you know, theatre is actually his second love. His true calling is pseudoscience, which I think is really good. Yes. <laughs> but, um, Conway, yeah. yeah, he's got this kind of uh, eccentric gentleman air to him. Uh, he, his, his verbiage is much more elevated and kind of like art fuck than Joseph, even though Joseph is actually a poet as well. Uh, there's a very, uh, you know, there's a sense of like, Joseph just kind of puts up with Carrington, whereas Carrington is like very passionate about the theater. (laughs) Absolutely right. I must have the perfect stage. Yeah. Joseph does say that he's, he's got a couple of doctorates under his belt, but like, he's just working at this gas station. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of hints here of academic backgrounds, right? So Joseph Carrington and then Weaver all have this like tie in with academia. Yeah. There's, there's like academia is the shadow presence that exists outside. And there's a very, there's a very strong sense that anyone who comes to Kentucky out of ac- academia has made a terrible decision. <laughs> yeah, uniformly, right? Like, like it is like if you decide to come to to Kentucky to study, to work, to explore, that's the end of you. It, it is a fatal choice that will destroy you and destroy your family. Yeah, there's another thing I love about this scene, uh, especially when you come back here with Shannon, uh, that it is now very evident that Joseph is blind. Because when the two characters walk up to him, you can kind of choose for either of them to introduce themselves. And Joseph will speak as if the other is not there. So if Shannon speaks, she'll say something about uh, fixing a TV for this guy. And he's like, oh, yeah, that guy that came through here. How's he doing? You know, Um, and I think it's the other way around as well. So, yeah, Joseph's blind, which was not evident initially, I don't think. Yeah. And it it makes the the emails he got well i mean if they're just emailing him for the bill you know he's he's never going to pay that fucking bill <laughs> well but the, the 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 email from uh donald right oh, yeah sure couldn't possibly read it no no that's just quite quite sad actually or who knows how old it is right but it's 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 yeah it's sad they don't have timestamps on these things unfortunately um if we go back to the marquez farmhouse which is the last place that weaver could possibly be um on the way up the road, uh, Shannon talks about Weaver being a mathematician and like, you know, she, she fled the family debt, basically. Like she uh, looked at the books finally and put the fucking numbers together and decided to skip town. Um, to also to bail out on her own college debt. And that tonight is the first time she's been seen since then. Also, the graveyard out front is fake, apparently. So like the, the, the headstones have a couple of names on them and one of them is Marquez. And Shannon's like, yeah, that's that's nobody's buried there. <laughs> like... Because you could put that together, right? Be like, oh shit, maybe that's where, you know, like uh, Shannon's drowned parents, you know, they're buried out front. It's like, no, that's just, those are just headstones. Which is <laughs> <Just> very funny. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's like, 
presumably the bodies were not recovered from the mine. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'd imagine so. But it's so weird uh, that and, Shannon and, and, says and, it's fake rather than it being like a ceremonial burial or something. Well, it has a double meaning to it, right? It's fake in the sense that she never really got her parents back. But on the other hand, she also says she's not sure if the headstone is actually for her parents or not. And it's like, it, it. I think that also gets to the idea of like the ceremony papering over the grievances that she has with the power company. It's like one of those futile gestures you make to get closure when you are in such a disempowered situation. Yeah. That okay. like you can't actually get redress from capital. You can just do things to make it less painful. Yeah, okay. And yeah. And the ceremony can be held by capital to shut you up, you know? And it's like maybe those other gravestones from the house that was demolished so that the weavers or sorry that so that weavers parents could build the house that would ruin them, you know, maybe they met a similar fate. Maybe they also had they had fake graves and 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 it's like we don't know who those other people were, but their fate is ominous because, you know, their their house was abandoned and destroyed so that this one could be built. Yeah, totally right. I think that that definitely makes sense. I think I may have misread. I, I think Shannon delivers lines with this deadpan kind of delivery that to me seemed like she was just saying they're they're like props or they're like gag headstones or something or that they're they like they're, they don't have any relation to her parents or whatever. But I think I think your reading is much, probably much more accurate there. Well, but I think there is an element of that as well, because the house itself is a set, you know, <laughs> these are all props. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a it's a set in the sense that the whole game is staged. And it's also a set in the sense it was designed for death of a salesman. So it, it it's like there's a lot of meanings that are playing around here. Um, the last thing I'll mention about this scene is there's some really nice foley of what sounds like a bar, a barred owl, uh, in the background. Um, and, and when the first time you come in to talk to Weaver, uh, she mentions it and, and, and Conway can only say he didn't see the owl. Uh, but I was like, oh man, I got to mention that owl. It's like really, really good recording. The owl is here this time. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the owl isn't present in the first version, the first in encounter. It's not, not, it's not, it's not, yeah. But it is this time. Um, yeah, and Weaver's, Weaver's fond of that owl, it seems. Um, yeah, the, the sound design in this is amazing. So I, I think, like, um, of the crew, um, let me just look up their names, like... Um, so the, the cardboard computer is made up of three people, Jake Elliott, uh, Tomas Kamensky and Ben Babbitt. And Ben Babbitt is a musician, and I, I believe his role was mostly sound design and music. So a full third of the creative crew is put into this, like, sound design and music stuff. They don't fuck around when it comes to the Foley, you know? No, it's it's really good. Um, yeah. And and that is a kind of uh, owl you would, you, would, you would see on the East Coast um, of the U.S., uh, so it's, it's appropriate. Yeah. Um, so they go, they go up into the, into the house. Shannon sets up the TV and gets it all fixed up. Um, cl cleaning moss off of one of the vacuum tubes, which is a bit of a call forward to, um, stuff that'll happen later. Um, I, I think that 
Or is it mold? No, it is moss. Do you think that's a typo actually in the script, perhaps? Because it's, it's mold later that, that grows on the vacuum tubes. Ah, interesting. I was thinking that because this TV was from Joseph, it probably had moss on it because it was from the caves. From the, like he got it from the caves, brought it back to the gas station, and then handed it off to Shannon, who brought it here. But it still had that mark of being down there with the Xanadu stuff. And that was the actually that was actually the moment for me where it clicked. I was like, oh, this Joseph is that Joseph. Yeah, sure. I see. Right. Yeah, it all starts to click into place. And once the vacuum tube is cleaned and clicked into place, uh, the uh, with the, the, it does this thing again of the, the back of the house peeling off and you can see the barn. Um, but the, as the camera pans in towards the barn, the image on the TV switches with the barn. Like they, they, they kind of warp and twist in a weird way so that the barn is on the TV. And what we see out back is a cave entrance um, or some sort of road, like a, a road leading into a tunnel entrance. Um, and this, this, this weird ambient music comes up and we see the, the van driving into the cave and then it cuts to black. Presumably, this is the zero. Yeah, we never see like. Yes, it's the it's the entrance to the zero, and we never see uh, Conway and Shannon like get leave the house, get into the van, anything or like the truck, any of that stuff. They just go. Uh, it, it's like it just cuts straight to that, which is really effective. The other thing I love about it is that the horses are totally just like not bothered about this at all. They're like whatever. Mm-hmm. There's just horses grazing out there, yeah. They don't give a shit. It's like, it's like you know, barn, cave entrance, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> Doesn't make a fucking difference, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's irrelevant uh, to them. They're not startled in fantastic. any way. Yeah. And so that's the end of Act 1, um, which is... That's a very svelte hour of screen time. Um, it's not much... It, 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 playing it again for this this uh, this recording, I was struck by just how little dialogue there is. It's it's such a tight experience. Um, act one, um, it'll start to sprawl later, but wow, they they can do a lot in an hour. Um, yeah, this is a. Um, so when I played through the game originally, this was the only chapter I played on release. And then everything else after that, I played when the final chapter had been released, uh, which I believe was the opposite for you. Yeah, I, I like an absolute fool, um, got hooked on this immediately when, when it was released and then waited patiently for every fucking release. And I was crawling up the goddamn walls and like, <laughs> it was it was such a torturous wait because this is seven years it took to get all this stuff out. And I think what we ended up with is truly phenomenal. But like for, for, for times there, I was like, what, what the fuck is going on? Are we ever going to see the end of this? Um, I think actually the episodic format kind of hurt it in a way because there was long enough gaps in between that I kind of forgot some of the plot. So I think the correct way to experience this is to wait and to, to play it kind of back to back over the course of a week or two weeks. Yeah, well, because the interesting thing is that it's not actually... It's not really, it doesn't feel episodic is I guess what I would say is like it, it's structured with a five act structure, like a classic five act structure. And it has that format to it, 
Like, it's like, you know, the introduction, the rising action, the climax, all that stuff. Um, it's, it's all there. Uh, and it feels like of a piece, you know? Like, it's, it's not like these are bottle episodes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all killer. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think uh, it was worth playing through all at once. Because uh, I, I just started back again at, at, at chapter one um, and played through to the end of chapter five uh, or act five, I should say. Um, and uh, over the course of a week. So it was it was a it was a very intense week. <laughs> mm-hmm. So also like the fact that it took seven years to release ten hours of material might seem damning, but I I get the impression that a lot of time was spent on uh, writing and the just endless refinement of the content and the the spectacular kind of camera work and the visual effects because like it, it's not flashy in the visual department. It's not like you know, it's it's not like Doom 2016 or whatever running on the best graphics card. It's it's actually it's very minimalistic, but it's so authored. Everything is fucking tuned down to the down to the micrometer. It's fucking staggering how good this thing looks and how 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 like perfect the stage directions are. Every little bit is slotted into place perfectly, and I, I can imagine it taking seven years to do that. I really can. Yeah, plus there's just so much dialogue in the later chapters. Like it's it's uh you know, this is a this is a huge huge uh, undertaking um to make this. So, uh we're going to cover the interlude that came after act 1. Um so there were four interludes spaced in between the five acts. Um they were released, I mean they they weren't they weren't like released at the halfway mark between releases of the acts, but they were um they're, they're nice little tasty bits of content to keep you going while you're waiting for the main course. Um, this one is called Limits and Demonstrations. Uh, these were initially separate downloads from the Cardboard Computer website. Um, but in the, in the new edition, the, the, the TV edition, or like the, the finished version on Steam, they're all rolled into the same executable, and you can select them from the, from the, the, the title menu. Um, but these, these were, these were kind of like tech demo sort of sideshows that weren't really billed as being part of the main thing, although they clearly are. Um, So Limits and Demonstrations is the most, uh, it's the smallest of them. And in part because this was a, uh, the the title kind of gives it away. This was actually a kind of test for users' graphics cards to see how far the creators could push things without breaking the visuals which is really strange to me because like the geometry is very simple like the only the only thing i could see that would actually put any load on a computer or on a graphics card would be the lighting uh yeah i kind of get the impression that um the the constraint was that they wanted it to run flawlessly even on very restricted hardware because because it. so much of the um, because so much of the game is this visual spectacle, I think they I, I suspect they wanted it to run without ever stalling, like never drop a frame, and that means you have to work within extremely tight constraints. And so it maybe makes sense to do this like test run to see like, hey, when you folks run this, does it choke? 
And if it does, we need to change the textures. Um, that makes a lot of sense, yeah, where you have like the camera rotating and the dynamic lighting. Like, uh, uh, so one of the pieces here... Um, it's like a it's like a, a a light swinging off of a TV or something, you know. Uh, it's it's a little different than that. It's not exactly that. Uh, it's so it's a um, just looking at it here. Uh, uh, the vertex texture fetch uh, uh, tree television and suspended cathode ray tube. Uh, Nineteen sixty eight found materials. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, so we should clarify this. This is um, this is an art gallery. It's a it's a single room. Yeah, and these these pieces are that are the like demos for like what your graphics card can do um, under these conditions. Yeah. So th- that one has a lot of dynamic lighting on it. I I think like well I guess we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on here. But uh, uh, this this is. Um, yeah, I can I can see how they were testing different things with these different exhibitions. Yeah, uh, even though yeah, when you think about tech demo, you usually think about like three D Mark or something like that. This is this is like a tech demo for like your bare bones uh, budget build computer. Totally right. I, th- I think it, it seems like they wanted wanted it to run even on the shittiest laptops and be just fucking flawless like the that it would never chug um which is it's an admirable goal but it, it's certainly not like demo scene sort of stuff or whatever um that it that the uh the, th- the thing might suggest but the the opening here is um we have these the the three base basement people as as joseph calls them um that are standing around they're looking the the initial prompt is for the um I guess the the placard at the at the start of the ex- exhibit in this this art museum, um, and it's it's this spiel about this artist Lula Chamberlain, and this is a big exhibition of her her life's work and all through her very dynamic sort of career, and it's pushing the limits of the medium, you know, kind of a wink to what they're trying to do with the um, the demo, um, and it's it's all very art speak, right? It's very kind of museum stuff. Um, so a bit of a tonal shift from what we've just had, but um, it, we're starting to see more of that, like the academic space. And th- this is the Lula of the um, Joseph Donald and Lula trio that was, was um, alluded to earlier. These, these are the academics and the art people. Um, the, three, the three people we have in the room here are Emily, Ben, and Bob. And I think this is probably the first time they're very clearly named. Um, or maybe they're named in the basement scene, actually. Um, they are. They are. They are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe I just noticed it uh, this time around. Um, but they're 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 buddies. You know, they're little music buddies, and they're they're walking around this thing. It's a circular, just a circular room, and we've got this camera placed high up in the center that tracks them as they walk around. Um, there's some fun little fun little pieces here. You know. Yeah. The the first. Uh, well, it's the the order is arbitrary because you can walk left or right. Um, but in clockwise order, the first one is spinning coin suspended, correcting for angular motion. Uh, supposedly 1976. Uh, remember, this is a retrospective. Uh, found materials. Yes, like it's very hard to pin down when a lot of these things happen because it seems like the perspectives jump all over the place in time. So this kind of could be any time in the future relative to the stuff we've just seen. Um, because the the main game takes place over the course of one night and one day. It's sundown to sundown, but this could be years after the fact. You know, like it's it's hard to know exactly when this is. Right. 
it's obviously not uh, during the action of the main game because <clears throat> uh, it's somewhere else, located somewhere else, uh, in some city with a with an art gallery, a big art gallery. Yeah, it's not the derelict museum that we just went to. No, certainly not. Um. Yeah, uh, so um, this one is like a big computer monitor with a coin inside, and it's it's kind of at this like angle where it's going to fall over, but it's suspended. Um, it's it's on its front left uh, corner, right? Like it's it's balancing on that corner. Um, this looks a lot like the the old. Um, the Xerox machines that had a vertical monitor, if anyone remembers those ones. Um, it looks a lot like that. Um, the the character, Emily, Ben, and Bob say that this just looks very anxious because <laughs> it looks like it's going to fall over. Um, and these are accompanied by little sound design things. Like, this has got a really horrible industrial noise buzzing around in the background. Um, yeah, which is, you know, very, like, typical installation art stuff, right? Um, uh uh, next, we have Vertex Texture Fetch, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, a tree television sustend- suspended cathode ray tube. Uh, 1968 found materials. I think this one is like um, you have the television below and the CRT above. And what's happening is that um, the magnetism from the CRT is uh, causing uh, distortion on the the CRT television below. I think that's what's supposed to be happening here, is that, like, yeah, the, the magnetic uh, field from the, the top CRT is just, like, causing, like, weird stuff to happen on screen. Now, the this uh, exhibition was actually staged in real life by the creators of Kentucky Route Zero, um, and, uh, it would have been nice to get some video from there to get a better look at what is exactly going on here because the, um, because the camera's so high up and far away, it's a little hard to see exactly what's going on with this installation here. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's fun. It's also that they're, the creators are playing with the kind of like physical modeling systems in in the game engine that will will be more of a thing later like there's there's often these things that are very clearly like proper physical simulations of things swinging around or like swinging back and forth um because most of the scenes are completely static like there's very few moving parts except when they're very obviously moving parts um this is maybe a demo of the physics engine as well yes yeah um so uh then we have the big one uh overdubbed Nam June Paik uh, installation in the style of Edward Packer, uh, 65, 73, and 80, presumably because these uh, recordings that are in this installation come from uh, different times. Um, uh, so this is uh, actually based on um, an installation by Nam June Paik uh, which was more or less like a primitive editing suite, like a, a music editing suite or a sound editing suite where like the um, the the user could uh, basically like mix sounds together uh, and it had this little like, you know, uh, picture in the back of, of these lines and... Mm. 
like a multi-track tape deck sort of thing going on. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Now, <clears throat> the reason why it's it's called in the style of Edward Packer is because Edward Packer is the is the person who uh, created Choose Your Own Adventure. Um, uh, so it's these, uh, it's, it's a tape, a playhead with synthesized speech, uh, and the tapes are recorded by Lula, uh, and they, they are very, um, you know, personal, uh, 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 bits of story that she's recorded and you can, um, turn the, uh, playhead in a certain direction on a dial and that will select a track so instead of saying like turn to page 163 in the choose your own adventure book it says like turn this many degrees to do x or turn this many degrees to do y so it's like you're using this analog playback system as a choose-your-own-adventure book is the idea here. It's super fun. And it's, it's a meta, meta choose-your-own-adventure going on. It's really cool. Um, yes, because, of course, you're you know, interacting with the characters and what they say uh, on stage, too. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, the story of the Xanadu Project. Uh, that Lula did with Joseph and Donald. Um, it's uh, in an academic setting with a giant computer, uh, and it has a poetry submodel. This is where you start, right? Um, uh, so you're you're experimenting with um, computer uh, narrative making, um, and I believe. This is it. This installation that uses text from like the first computer-generated writing ever. I think so. Yeah, there's there's some mention of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, oh no, it's uh, sorry. That's Visage. That's Visage. Uh, this this one is is straight up just Lula telling uh, the story of Xanadu. Um, so it's almost like we get these vignettes. Right, like there's bits of dialogue, a uh, little bit of commentary on what's what the setting is, um, and they only really make any sense in retrospect. This this was baffling to me when I first played it. I was like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I was like, "What what's this all about? Um, what could this possibly mean?" Um, there's a couple of the vignettes. There's like yeah, you get the initial one in in the kind of what you, seems to be the the university offices with the giant computer. Then there's um, a, a tape deck labeled Caves, um, where they're, they're going down a dark trail. And there's quite a nice little uh, bit here. I think one of them says, like, it's, it's not so much a trail, it's more of a tendency. Plants tend not to grow on this, this thing, you know? It's a nice academic kind of language. Very Deleuzian, <laughs> you know? Well, it's because they're, they're not, like, they're underground in a cave system. So, like, yeah, of course, there's not really a trail here. It's it, it it is it's like a tendency. Um, it's not it's not like someone's carved this out or something for them. Yeah, sure. And then then there's the um, the story of them setting up like finding this cave opening, setting up camp down there, bringing the computers down into the caves. All this stuff of like oh well, it's a whole world down here. It's this huge thing we've got to investigate these caves, right? Um, that cuts short, and then the the, the prompts then are, are quite evocative, where it's um, 
to remember a fond gesture, turn such and such and such degrees, or to regret a harsh word, turn these other degrees. Um, the fond gesture is, um, well, they, they, both of these open up with the same line from Lula, well, very similar lines, uh, saying that's, in this case, for the remembering a fond gesture, it's it's morning, she's in her car, and this, this is the last recording, and she'll drop it in the mail after she's done. And she relates the story of meeting Joseph and Donald in college and all these good times, right? And then regretting a harsh word is, it's the it's morning, she's at her desk, and this is the last recording, she'll drop it in the mail once she's done. Which, I don't know, it suggests like parallel universes or something, that there's like, these both of these happened, maybe, but they don't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, I, I don't know why would she use the same phrasing. It's quite odd. But the story here then is um, that at some point she bombed out and went off to Mexico City for a couple of years without saying goodbye to anyone, came back years later and was hanging around the campus and ran into one of these, uh, either Joseph or Donald by chance. And he says, oh, why didn't you call? And it never occurred to me. <laughs> um, and that's the harsh word. Um, so... There's something up with Lula. She's rather strange. Like she's she's very, this deep fondness for these people, and then this um, I don't know. There's there's something odd odd going on there. Um, yeah, it's that weird love polygon. It's just just a very strange topography to it. Mm-hmm. And we don't get a lot from Joseph's perspective, and we we haven't got anything from Donald's perspective yet. Um, Lula is we don't like we actually don't get a lot from Lula's perspective either really <laughs> this is this is kind of it um so we're, we're trying to piece together and infer what exactly went on with these folks um and it's it's hard to really know uh much about it yeah I mean we we meet Lula in the next chapter but uh yeah but we don't get a lot of time with her um we get some time with Donald in, in act three but not not as much um but it is, there's a lot of regret here. There's a lot of sadness around these kinds of these kinds of things. Um, at this point, it, it, you can either quit out, or I think Bob says that like, oh, there's there's a there's a section of the tape we haven't been to yet. Can we just skip to it? And they're like, yeah, let's cheat. If you, if you break, yeah, if you break the choose your own adventure pattern and just go like, well, what's on this page? You just you just jump there. Uh, Classic 10-year-old energy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that track, there's an argument between the three where the group is splitting up. Um, Joseph wants to go back to the surface. Um, he references uh, people from the, ele the electric company that he saw in the caves. Um, Donald wants to stay in the caves and continue the project, and Lula takes off on the zero. Um, and that is... Oh, no, so Donald says that she should stay because they need her because the... The machine only recognizes her voice, to which she responds, she'll send the tape. Um, so this is this is interesting, right? And they're kind of blurring the timelines here, right? That like, I don't know, there's there's something crissy-crossy about the way the time works here in um, the references to like dropping off the tape in the mail and and so on. Um, or also the, the suggestion that these things happened in parallel because it's the same phrasing of the way she phrases the final entry, the supposed final entry, and both of them exist. I don't know. Weird stuff. Um, yeah. And we, we get here in Joseph's dialogue uh, the first reference to the men from the electric company uh, who they... The Xanadu people didn't actually understand who they were, but they, they see them. And we're going to see that mentioned again once we actually get to this 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 site. Indeed. Um 
And so I think at this point, uh, the, uh, the, our trio um, decide to go leave the museum and go eat or something. Um, and that's your way out. Um, so a short little thing. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can like, choose to, like, go to work or... Yeah, yeah. It's just like, oh, well, I've got something to do. It's it's one of the... Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a couple of flavor options there. Um, what are the other... There's, a, there's two other little um, uh, installations, right? There's a visage. Um, oh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, visage uh, is... Um, so, it's based on this uh, book... The policeman's beard is half constructed, uh, which is um, uh, based on a program called Ractor that was uh, uh, written by someone named William Chamberlain, who's uh, 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 sorry, Lula's name is a reference to William Chamberlain, who was an actual person who wrote Ractor, which was a, you know, uh, story generating program. Um and, uh, you know, it's like a very primitive version of AI Dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, the, the, the weirdo storytelling, collaborative storytelling AI that is, is all over YouTube and stuff these days. Yeah. So it, it's just a reference to, like, the history of computer-generated narrative and stuff like that. It kind of has um, similar vibes to that Eliza thing. Like, very, very like, 70s computing, you know. Um, early like linguistic processing sort of work um, and all of the it, it has this stuff with Lula and Joseph and Donald has the kind of flavor of the the early optimism for AI uh, even with like vacuum tube computers and stuff like that uh, there's just a lot of that flavor here yes know? yes they they the project they embark on is one of the utopian projects that we see in this game and it's a kind of meta commentary on the history of computing and a meta commentary on the game itself. Um, so it's, you know, yeah, there's a there's a there's a, like a strange loop of self-referentiality as well as historical reference that's that's happening with this whole story about um, Xanadu. Uh, which we'll get into more like the details of uh, as as we get there because it's yeah it's 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 tying this whole game back to the the history of early video games um, indeed and th there's also a lot here of that um, I think that thing I mentioned earlier where these uh, these creators have this love for like the visual arts installations and for the sense of like televisions and computers being magic you know. And the, the like the buzz of the electricity and the like glow of the CRT screens having this like magical kind of property to them. Um, so a lot of those feels are all tied up here in one thing. Yeah, when I when I played through this game this time, um, I decided to play on a CRT monitor uh, at the game's lowest possible resolution, six forty by four eighty. Uh, incredible <laughs> how'd it work out oh yeah it's really cool um uh it's nice to have like the scan lines on the screen and stuff like that and uh um it also has uh option uh in the game to switch between the modern or classic presentation 
the yeah you you get this kind of like um sort of like the text is the main thing it's more alias text and that kind of stuff uh but uh i turned that on as well and then uh, I don't think the interface elements change that much, uh, but they do. They, they're sort of reminiscent of like the uh, the Mac HyperCard type uh, interface, right? Yeah, like the, the the hand for clicking on things is. It really reminds me of like the early Macintosh UI elements. Um, so I, I'm going to experiment to see if I can get the resolution to go even lower. Uh, and just like <laughs> see if I could get it to run at like 240p and uh, uh, just get like really thick scan lines on the screen to try to get the most the most analog experience possible of this. Uh, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure your graphics card can downsample it anyway on the way out, right? You know. Yes, yes. It's just a matter if you have to go through some rather esoteric uh edid hacking to to make it happen um uh which i think i can manage so it's gonna be interesting to see if that that happens uh and you know it would also be fun to like you know play this game on like a monochrome crt <laughs> or something like that right oh, like it's uh i i i i i love uh you know i love crts and I love this game's obsession with them, so I'm just trying to ind indulge in that uh, this time around. Because last time I played it on a big, uh, I played it on a big uh, plasma television with the modern interface. So I've had that experience already. I'm starting to wonder if this was, if the game was developed against a CRT television, you know, possibly as as one of its reference outputs possible you know at the time this game was developed the the crts would have been very easy to get a hold of and not expensive at all now they're incredibly expensive to buy yeah just with junk lying around anyway um oh we, we forgot one of the one of the things there's basement puzzle number two which is um it's just a model of a horse with a it's 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 a it's a, a shape that looks like it looks like um if you took a D20 and then drew lines inside of it and then took away the shell, you'd be left with a star pattern that looks like this. So it's kind of a reference to the basement of Equus Oils. Um, well, it, it's it's literally like cut content from the game. Like this is this is a little, not really a diorama, but like some setting elements, some stage elements that were in the game uh before release in act one like when you go down to that basement in equus oils uh but were cut and then were repurposed as this little exhibition so it's it's just a hundred percent like a little self-referential easter egg that's that's all this is yeah you get to get to use all the content use every part of the the, the kentucky um yeah that's limits and demonstrations um it's a fun little fun little thing, and I I, I kind of love those three characters, the, those um, Emily, Ben, and Bob. Um, also, like given that these are the musicians who scored the whole thing, and Ben is probably Ben Babbitt, like the guy who scored the whole thing. Um, and I I think in fact Emily is actually the name of the lady who lends the vocals to to these performances. So who who knows who Bob is? But um, I'm sure he's a cool guy. Uh, <laughs> well, and then the other thing is that 
this they they just kind of remind me of uh, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, like where they're backstage and all this stuff is happening to them. Uh, <laughs> they're very cool. Um, yeah, fun. Uh, so that's that's our first chunk of Kentucky Route Zero. Um, it's wow, what a what a fucking great game. Um, and. We, we hope you've enjoyed it as well, um, and we hope you enjoy coming along for the ride on these these episodes. But yeah, uh, while you're waiting on the next one, um, you can catch us on the web at uh, generalintellectunit.net. We're on Twitter, uh, Facebook, all that other stuff. So subscribe, all that kind of thing. Although, I don't think anyone's going to fucking uh, sit through these couple of episodes on Kentucky Road Zero without already being subscribed. Or maybe we get new listeners because of this. This would be fucking great, actually. Yeah, it's, um, it, it might actually be the case of like, oh, hey, you know. Because you, honestly, there's not a lot of podcasts covering this game yet. Um, yeah, like it doesn't seem like anyone's really talking about it. Um, it, it got a lot of people's best of year sort of lists and stuff. Um, so it seems to be well loved by the music press, or not music press, but the um, gaming press. But not seeing a lot of content about it. But um, yeah, the the sort of games club podcasts aren't covering it yet. That's probably something that's going to come up in the in in the near future. I would imagine. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be the the first to do it, right? Um, yeah. But yes, welcome <laughs> to new listeners. Um, and if you are a new listener, this show is mostly about um, technology and socialism and socialist theory and weird stuff like that. Um, we're good folks. We're good communists. So have a look through the catalog and see if there's anything nice that jumps out at you. Um, yeah. Um, and it's all, it'll be fine to just listen in for these couple of episodes, too. Um, but hey, uh, what else we got? Uh, Patreon.com slash General Intellect Unit. Um, give us a couple of bucks a month to get into the community Discord, which is good fun. Um, and what else? Emancipation.network, um, our, 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 our network of collaborators. Um, you can check out our other, our other shows, um, From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia and Mortal Science. They are fantastic. And uh, Kyle guests a lot on some of the other ones. Um, Y'all are doing the, um, ah, the fucking understanding class, right? Um, That started this week. Yes. So, yeah. So if you are a, I believe if you are a patron of From Alpha to Omega or Emancipation Network, you can jump in on the live streams or actually we're sharing this publicly. Yeah. So you can just jump in on the live streams of, uh, understanding class, uh, our, our series, uh, it's usually running on Saturdays, uh, on the weekend. Um, and, uh, it, sh- I, I imagine the episodes on Tom's feed from, El- uh, for, from alpha to Omega will just be starting understanding class at the point that this is released. Uh, so this is, um, uh, obviously it's a, yeah, book by Eric Walden, right? Uh, it's about what class actually is and what the different ways of analyzing it are and what that implies. Uh, so, um, it's well worth checking out. Um, we're having some really good discussions about the book and, uh, yeah, uh, definitely, uh, go take a look at that. If you're, confused about things like the PMC thesis or, you know, um, 
what uh, class reductionism really means or, uh, you know, all of this kind of, uh, quote unquote, post left uh, theorizing about the working class, uh, any of that stuff. We're talking about it in our discussion of understanding class. Uh, so something a little bit more sociological than we usually cover, but it's it's a good read. It's a really good read. Um, I would I would even recommend just picking the book up and even just reading the first chapter or whatever because it's pretty pretty good pitch, you know, for like, hey, let's let's just do decent sociology and you know look at all these different these other dimensions of class and relate them back to a Marxist framework. Um, you know, it's it's an expansion of the territory rather than a kind of like it's you know it's 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 not like saying hey look Marx got it wrong let's let's go look at Weber instead it's more like let's look at both of them yeah no yeah. it's it's more saying that there are elements of marxian class analysis that are not covered by the standard marxian definition of class uh there's like more more sort of, uh, I guess, like sociological definitions that uh, uh, are also relevant to what Marxists say and think, but we just haven't really theorized clearly what these different things are. And then, you know, Eric Olin Wright's trying to put it into one big framework that includes all of them. Yeah. And I think I, I really like his kind of point that like... Um a good Marxian analysis will also just be good sociology. Like it'll, it'll be good because it's good methodology, not because it's like special magic dust, um, rubbed on it. Um, which is a, a good message. Uh, but Hey, uh, that'll all be coming up on the various feeds. Um, but yeah, again, thanks for coming along with us and thanks for indulging us on this, um, maybe slightly long diversion through this, um, this, this piece of media. But it is, it is all relevant uh, and it's all wonderful. So, um, and we, we do have uh, big plans for the year uh, for, for our usual kinds of, uh, of readings and analysis. Fantastic. Uh, thanks, and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.